Hi, this is Chris Bilton from University of Warwick, and you're listening to the We'll Meet Again podcast. Over the summer of 2020, I've been speaking to leading figures in the cultural and creative industries about life under lockdown, how they're adapting to the COVID crisis, and what needs to change in the future. It's Tuesday the 28th of July, and in this episode I'm talking to Tom Piper, one of the UK's leading theatre designers. This week, the UK government is clamping down on travel to and from Spain. We're about to eat out to help out in UK restaurants. And it's just been announced that the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical Phantom of the Opera will not be reopening, ending a West End run of 33 years. I've spoken to several other people, and the thing that keeps coming up is, well, at least it's not as bad as theatre. And you've been quite active in trying to draw attention to the plight of theatre. And, um, and I wondered whether you would, just to start off, if you can, if you can say something about what you think the, the challenges are right now. Yeah, I think at the moment the, the big challenge is that we've had a rescue package, but we don't yet know how that is going to be distributed uh, and I think there's a public perception that somehow theatre is reopening. Uh, but until we have a, a date around when you could do something that was socially social distancing didn't need to apply or it was low enough that you could get your 70% in a house to make it viable, then it seems impossible for venues to open. And then there's a secondary worry for, because 70% of our industry is freelancers, of how that money goes to freelance communities uh, and how it doesn't all get bogged down in the buildings. Yeah, there's the focus on institutions and that rather unfortunate phrase, crown jewels. My huge worry is about the people a bit further down in the terrible word food chain of the creative sort of task force because there's a lot of talk and certainly the Arts Council um, uh, projects that you can apply for that you can you can be uh, you know individual artist led sort of projects but actually that implies the kind of level of the kind of directors designers the people who might see themselves as kind of artists with the primary idea. Whereas actually a vast number of the people we're talking about are people who might make a hat or a puppet or, a, or build a set. And, and they're not the primary person who comes up with the idea. So we need to find a way to support them. For a lot of people, this crisis has exposed the reliance on freelancers, which people have, I guess, have, in the industry have always known about. But from the outside, people are, are, are surprised, really, at the extent to which the entirety is run by um you know, by, by lots of individual people. Yeah, I think very much so. And I think it's been a creeping thing that we haven't noticed happening. Uh, I mean, I've been aware of it. I was one of the few designers who had a kind of role within a building when I was associate at the RSC uh, and fought quite hard there to keep training schemes, develop training schemes for young designers and, you know, and support the crafts. Whereas I've gone to other venues, for example, Bristol Old Vic had a lovely uh, Steve Tompkins redevelopment but in their business plan, they worked out they didn't need their costume department anymore. So they kind of got rid of their costume department, made another rehearsal room. Um, and so actually, when you go back to work somewhere like that, at the moment, you're working out of a dressing room and you are employing entirely freelance people. And there are smaller numbers of people uh, involved. And it's much more stressful for those people who are there uh, and, and bad for their mental health. And also, you know, bad for the actors that don't get as much support. And we've sort of 
without realizing it, I think we've ended up with this kind of uber sort of economy. And then, you know, of course, for some people being a freelancer, you know, there's lots of good things, you know, you can walk away from, from a project, you know, you don't have to get involved in a building and its politics. Um, but ultimately we, I think we're actually potentially brilliant, um, un paid and uh, and not properly acknowledged consultants in how buildings can work and how they can be more creative you know and how we can get involved with them that's what i'm trying to advocate at the moment is trying to find ways through this crisis and the reset to get artists back into buildings at higher levels so that you get people in the management teams you get people on boards to try and kind of actually talk about um not just how you make the art but you know how you can make the the building better you, you, are you specifically thinking about being on being involved in management decisions, or are you talking more about them being on the payroll? Uh, it's a, it could be a combination. I think uh, one of the models I'm interested in is is an idea of sort of a bit like you might have associate directors with a company or a, or a writer in resident that you would have a relatively experienced kind of designer in residence in a company who would be on, may helping to make management decisions, but would also then be acting as a kind of mentor for uh, getting younger designers in and also in crucially kind of involved in engagement within the community to try and find different pathways for creative people into the industry. I mean, one of the other huge crises that we've exposed is how undiverse the kind of backstage community, especially is in theatre and, you know, and that there are very limited pathways and very unsustainable pathways into it as a career, which is why it's remained very middle class and white. The problem, I suppose, is that it's going to get harder to encourage people to move into an industry which is seen to be struggling as it is now. Yes, actually now we're in this weird position of advocating for a profession that is actually unsustainable. It's a real conundrum actually about how to develop it and I guess my the only way I can think of doing it is by kind of building schemes around buildings and trying to find sort of funding either through government or from trusts that might help that to happen that you can kind of create centers of excellence that you can uh, support people and then also run kind of mentoring schemes for people midway through their careers as well it's all very well to have a you know like come out and have a year's placement some but then what happens next do you think that do you feel that theater has been um unfairly discriminated against when you look at other industries like you mentioned bars and restaurants and the travel industry the, there are various sort of concessions that seem to be made to other industries and yet not to theatre and and I wonder why that is. There's been a lack of understanding about not just the economic argument about the the 70% needed but also the emotional argument that actually it's the community coming together in close proximity and, and you know, dare I have always said, uh, sharing the same air as the actors in, you know, in the same space in the same time that is that makes it the kind of transformative magical experience it can be. In government, there hasn't perhaps been quite the imagination to kind of really understand that kind of, you know, the more profound nature of theatre and I think it is tricky when you do look at the example of the aeroplane and kind of go, what exactly is the difference between, you know, sitting next to somebody actually probably more cramped in an aeroplane than you would be in a theatre? What do you think of things like the, these, the sort of digital workarounds then that be like, um, you know, there was a Nick Cave concert where he, where he played to an empty concert hall and then there was the, 
the performance of the old Vic with um, mm. Claire Foy and Matt Smith. All of those things for me highlight the fundamental problem that a recording of theatre doesn't allow you to be the editor. Uh, a, you're not there, and B, you can't make the choice of what, who you want to focus on, whether you want to mentally zoom in, zoom out. It's all done for you by the camera, the cameraman or woman. Most of the theatre things that I've been watching, you know, the national NT Live things have have actually slightly, some of them made me rather embarrassed about theatre because it just doesn't translate. I think that your point about the mental editing is really good, actually, that it, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but you, you, you don't have that freedom to tune in, tune out. That comes from my um, work a lot in thrust theatres where as a designer you're working very sculpturally because people are looking at your world from multiple angles and also the audience are in that view very often. So you're having to make up your own kind of mental picture of what's going on. You're using imagination kind of much more than you would in, in the kind of filmic world. Yes, and it's something you're always told as an actor that, you know, you're, you're reaction acting. So even if you are third spear bearer or, or in the history plays, if you are one of the, you know, the minor dukes who's, who's there witnessing history unfold, that's a really interesting lens to see the whole story being told through. No, and then you see the whole world. The optimistic view of this is that people are going to be so desperate to get back into some kind of live interaction because I certainly missed live performance, whether it's theatre or music, uh, just being in an audience, being part of an audience. And there isn't really a digital substitute for that, I don't think. We're going to have to move eventually to a perception of risk model of leading our lives that we can't forever be in lockdown uh and i read a really interesting article in the new york times about the in post the aids crisis about how you know they began to move from a model that was no longer about abstinence and kind of moved into safe sex and somehow we're going to have to find a way of having safe theater um uh and at the moment you know the various models that i've encountered are you know exceptionally dull say theatre you know where it's so so limited and controlled and and you have to wear a mask which is i find especially as a glasses wearer was is especially difficult throughout a you know a live performance especially a gig where you're meant to be standing up and dancing um so i i think that what might well happen is that the, you know it's a great opportunity to theatres to bring in much younger audiences who might be you know like certainly in london on seen a a sort of almost festival culture among the younger generation going to parks, sitting around, you know, and they do feel less at risk. I'm sure that's right, that younger younger people, younger audiences uh, have a different perception of risk. And, you know, there can't be zero risk. We can't live in a – you don't have a life of zero risk. And mm. if you're looking at it dispassionately, the risks of being, you know, being killed in a traffic accident, being kicked to death by a donkey, all those usual comparisons that come come into play – are far greater. I think I drove through Victoria Park the other day to take my daughter to a new new flat, and you know the guy set up a sound system. You know, it was the yeah. pubs were sort of sprawling. It really was, and I guess that's what that's when it starts feeling galling that we and the theatre sector can't, or you know, are finding it so difficult to start back up when actually you know the public life on the street certainly in you know, a city like London seems to be almost back to normal. And yet these buildings are still closed, which is one of the reasons why we did the scene change tape kind of gesture was to kind of highlight the fact that, you know, 
not forget the fact that these buildings were were sh- still shut and are likely to stay shut, you know, unless we hear something pretty concrete by the 3rd of August, you know, Christmas is cancelled. And, and there's a danger, you know, that much highlighted that 70% of theatres could easily go bust by by Christmas if, if this funding doesn't come through in the right kind of way. Yeah, well, so a lot of them already went bust before the, the funding was even promised. I, was, I saw, I went past the old Vic and I saw the dressing, the, the sort of, the tape outside that one and and um and i wondered what what that how that felt doing doing a, that engagement with the outside of the building because obviously most of what you do is inside the building yeah. did it give you any sort of thoughts and reflections on theater buildings and and their place in in the city yeah i mean it was a great thing to do i mean as a, the groupers in scene change had started discussing it because of seeing the hazard warning tape around the national make it look like some kind of toxic crime scene uh, and wanting to subvert that idea with this missing live theater a live theater missing kind of uh, pink hazard warning tape we also didn't want it to look toxic we wanted it to look kind of inviting almost decorative like it was sort of wrapped up like a present waiting to be reopened and now i think we've done 110 buildings across the country uh, you know, from really tiny little ones and some prison, you know, clean break company, their van. And and, and then there's going to be the last one's going to be in Mull, I think. And it shows the rich ecology of the British theatre scene. So from the National Theatre through to some amateur theatres, the RSC down in Plymouth, we did, you know, just after they'd announced lots of redundancies. And I think, again, that's something that the government doesn't get. You know, they talk about the crown jewels, but actually, you know, Without the setting for the jewels, they'll just fall down. You know, you actually have to have the whole structure to make it kind of work. And, and you know, and there's also all the kind of community stuff that's not even built in theatre building base that we couldn't really highlight, but that whole kind of rich ecology. So that's, I think that's what made, you know, was the aim of it and what, what I felt about it. It's kind of exposed, as you said at the beginning, really, an industry that is just not sustainable. And it's kind of disguised by unpaid labour of, of freelance people. It's disguised by reliance on certain types of audience, which excludes other types of audience and so on. And, it, and, it, and actually, for it to really be sustainable, it, it, it does need a sort of massive rethink, which, which is not just about money. It's about a rethink about what theatre's for and who it's mm-hmm. for and who works in it and all of those things, which you'd like to think optimistically that, thinking is happening somewhere well i thought your um, and i shared it with a lot of people your um your kind of podcast or um about the way that the netflix and those kind of people are, are kind of basically harvesting the, the 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 amazon forest of creativity and sort of chopping out all the all the kind of the all the fully developed trees and then not replanting anything and, it, and that that kind of metaphor for me was very mm. powerful that actually we've been and even that shocking realization that that people just get nothing musicians get nothing from streaming i didn't realize that the national only has 15 percent government subsidy you know and all the rest is ticket sales and commercial things and you know and that's why for example bristol old vic you know in their redevelopment model the model was to create spaces that you could hire out so you could hire out your rehearsal room you could hire out the front of house space to make money and to do that you lost your craft skills it feels to me there's another kind of 
interesting agenda about environmentalism too, where you kind of go, that was another crisis that we were facing, that theatre was very unenvironmentally sustainable. And therefore, we needed to change our way of working there too, which probably means making things much more local, employing people more locally, recycling materials locally, you know, working with if you start having much more resident craftspeople, then actually they can reuse and recycle in the way that, you know, we used to do the SITS theatre, you know, used to have t- tiny budgets, but bold imaginations because they worked same group of people and recycled things and remade them and, and were probably very environmentally friendly, actually. And it's by moving into this sort of totally market-based sort of world where things do become disposable, you know, and uh, we're not thinking about that. So I think there's got to be a combination of, going local, making art within our communities, um, investing in people, in buildings, which will need more subsidy. And I think, I mean, I'm sure that's right, that that's why British theatre has been hit worse than a lot of other theatre industries, because it's been encouraged to be entrepreneurial and be enterprising and to earn income. Mm. And the problem with that is that a lot of the money that's being earned has has relatively little to do with theatre making. It's, as you say, it's hiring things out it's you know it's or and it's it's almost pulling you away from the things that you should be doing around audience development into marketing to the most lucrative market segments to get them in through the doors to pay to pay for things influencing the kind of choices of the sort of shows that get put on and so on and when you think about the the brilliant worldwide successes of matilda or harry potter or warhorse a girl from the north country i mean actually what i what's brilliant about most of those is that they are really good strong pieces of very popular theater uh in the right sense of the word that they have a kind of really broad appeal and they're really well made and well crafted and what we need from government i suppose is a recognition that these these things that give us a fantastic reputation around the world as a creative country need need funding at source there's a disconnect where people don't realize that those kind of people like you know ray smith who designed warhorse you know started out life working as an assistant at the sits you know um and if you look at what i did you know i only was able to do the poppies because i'd actually had a career built around doing fringe theater and small regional theater and then the rsc and so you know and it sort of built up from there that um apprenticeship ecosystem whatever you want to call it but the connected up between the small and the large um projects and venues and and parts of the industry is being cut off at, at the at the roots really isn't it with with um you know just looking at what uh, the, the cuts that have been made to local councils it's sort of isolating the tall kind of trees of the of the of the um big west end productions and saying there you go that's still that's still going to carry on but it can't really oh, get yeah. blown over if they haven't got the other trees around them if you carry on with that, <laughs> that metaphor and i think there's something in the the 10 steps to recovery that the public campaign for the arts uh, has come up with where you know which is about local councils and local funding and, and also making sure that that buildings are protected you know because there's again a huge danger if a if a theater building goes you know into receivership you know is it going to become a bloody weatherspoons and i was in you know i was incredibly aware of this when i did the tour of the poppies and so we did 18 different venues around the country a lot of them were in places that were you know in need of investment uh, as smaller towns and, and cities and and you realize what a really vulnerable um 
sort of ecosystem we have amongst you know there is there's energy and life in the big cities but the smaller towns you know if they've if they lose a theater as well as everything else you know they really begin to die i mean they're already dying a lot of them it seems to me and another thing that we we i did with the rsc uh, when we did a midsummer night stream a few years ago was the whole engagement with the amateur theater scene um again who they can't work and the same way that amateur choirs can't and the kind of you know huge benefit to the community to people's mental health you know getting people to meet and gather together in in spaces and if if all of those if all of that sort of stuff gets chipped away at too and you kind of lose all of that you know you really you know what what's what's going to happen to us as a society we'll just be condemned to sit inside and watch netflix forever but then there won't be any new content on netflix because there'll be no people trained to do it any final thoughts or things that we haven't just covered that you think we should have covered there i think there is a, a worry about the general kind of diversity of the profession the socioeconomic intersectionality of you know how difficult it is to get into this as a career there's a real worry that you know a lot of those people will drop out and then the survey that freelancers make theatre work did definitely prove that you know you know 30 percent think they're going to be dropping out and 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 a vast number of those people are people from a you know socioeconomically deprived or uh, black or ethnic minority background so you know it is a chance to reset i think people are very there's a real optimism about that but at the same time you know how can you reset if you haven't even got an industry that was tom piper on the 28th of july talking about theater in the uk while pubs and parks reopen our theaters are dark and empty once again the present covid crisis exposes deep-rooted problems theater has become overly reliant on a precarious underpaid unpaid army of freelancers connections to local audiences and communities have been worn down by relentless market pressure not only is it expensive to go to the theater it's expensive to work there and the career pathways are especially limited if you are poor if you are black or if you don't have the connections and cultural capital to get started theater is missing. There is an empty space in the wider ecosystem of the creative industries and in the public life of our communities. If we want these buildings to reopen, we need to rethink what theatre is for and who it's for. Theatre is not just the crown jewels. It gives us something we can't get from TV and film, as well as providing TV and film with a steady stream of ideas and talent. But to earn the right to public money, theatre needs to reclaim its purpose as a public good reconnecting to local people, opening new pathways for talent, reclaiming its place in our towns and cities. A place for taking risks, a place for imagination, emotion and, yes, breathing the same air. The buildings are still there. We're the ones who are missing. Let's think local, re-engage with audiences and communities, value the people inside the buildings, value the process of making something together. I'd like to thank Tom for his time. Thanks to Mike Ruchinski for the sound edit, to Rob Bilton for the music, and thank you for listening. I'm Chris Bilton from the University of Warwick, and in a theatre near you, I hope we will meet again. <laughs>